Hello, and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking to Haaretz opinion editor Esther Solomon, who is here in the studio. She'll be talking about her hard-hitting opinion piece calling for Israel and the world Jewish community to speak out against genocide denial in Bosnia. Hi, Esther. Thanks for being here. Lovely to be here. But before that... We are lucky to have with us here in the studio something that is increasingly rare in Israel these days. Since Israel closed the country to foreign visitors more than two weeks ago, and as we speak, has just turned the United States into a red country, an actual visitor from abroad, from the United States, no less. And not just any visitor. Welcome to William Daroff, the CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Welcome, William. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Allison. So the Conference of Presidents, for those who aren't familiar, is the umbrella group that is comprised of 51 Jewish groups. William Daroff came to the Conference of Presidents in 2019 after 14 busy years with the Jewish Federations of North America, where he was an influential lobbyist for the Jewish community in Washington, D.C., and served as their senior vice president. Before that, he worked on three presidential campaign staffs. He also worked for the Republican Jewish Coalition. And over the years, he's made all of the lists of influential Jewish leaders in the U.S., and his big claim to fame is as a major force on Twitter. Absolutely. And people should follow me at Daroff, at D-A-R-O-F-F. Thank you for the plug, Allison. (laughs) Well, congratulations on making it into the country. People must be very excited to see you in your hotel and in the vegan restaurants you like to frequent here in Tel Aviv. Absolutely. It's wonderful. It's great to see everybody and, and absolutely great to be in the capital of the vegan world here in Tel Aviv. So for much of your career, you've been hopping planes to and from Israel like you get on a bus. So the past two years of rare and difficult visits to Israel must have been odd for you. It's been uh, absolutely odd and, and complex and something that uh, I really feel for all of the Americans on and everyone else in the diaspora who has great difficulty uh, getting here. Thank God, as, as we've discussed, my daughter was a lone soldier in the IDF. And because of that, I was able to come in through a lone soldier parent exemption. Um, So that's why I'm here now. I'm thrilled that she uh, had a wonderful two years of service in the IDF. And I'm also thrilled by the fringe benefit of being able to be here to meet with government officials and civil society and meet with my friends in the news media. So for so many decades, Israel's been urging American Jews to come to Israel, travel to Israel, strengthen the connection. You've been in the connection business for a long time. So it's an odd dynamic to have American Jews, to have Jews in the diaspora in general, want to come to Israel and have Israeli leaders blocking them from coming in to protect the country. And uh, just this week, the chief rabbi of South Africa, Dr. Warren Goldstein, called Israel's border closure to foreign Jews a moral disgrace. He said that it was dividing families and undermining the very reason for the state's existence, which is to be a state for the Jewish people. And he said that Israel must reverse the ban or risk long-term damage to the country's relationship with diaspora Jews. Do you agree? I think it is uh, tragic. Uh, that uh, it is very difficult to get into Israel, and I think it will have a potentially long-lasting effect on 
Israel's foreign relations and particularly with the, the connection that the diaspora has with Israel. I do believe that being supportive of Israel and being engaged in Zionism is a key component of being Jewish, that it is in the 21st century uh, to be Jewish. Uh, I think the Zionist impulse is a key component of it. Uh, I do believe, though, that there are public health uh, reasons uh, for the closures. And although I'm, uh, like everybody else, I know far more about epidemiology than I did two years ago. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health expert. I do believe that it is important to ensure the public security and public health uh, of the Jewish state. Uh, and so I don't feel like it is my place to second guess that of the duly elected representatives of the state of Israel. I would say that, like in America, the the rules do seem to change as the science changes and as the politicians change. And I would encourage the government here to have a consistent, rational, and transparent policy, one that is in effect for everyone and one that uh, really that, that people can understand and see. And I think the fact that the, the rules have been changing, both here and in the United States and across the world, clearly two years into this causes a great deal of frustration. And my hope is that we will move through this wave and we'll be able to move forward through uh, vaccinations and quarantines and the like, and that the next time I'm in the studio, we will be uh, smiling uh, from uh, the other end of the uh, of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, God I willing. Mean, you said consistent. There's been a little bit of controversy in past days when uh, the government uh, said that they would continue Jewish group tourism to Israel, and uh, while Christian groups who wanted to come for the Christmas season were uh, were left out. Now that Israel has turned red, it's questionable whether birthright, whether other Jewish groups or missions will be left out. Um, either. But do you think that there should be any kind of uh, differentiation made between Jewish um, group tourism to Israel and, uh, and other groups? I think that uh, it's, Im I think it's important for following in the lead of Rabbi Goldstein to recognize that this is the uh, eternal homeland of all the Jewish people. And so to me, I do not have a problem with there being uh, different rules for uh, Jewish groups who are looking to engage uh, in Israel. I would suggest though that issues that are public health related, like a quarantine, uh, should be in place for everyone, regardless of their uh, their faith or belief. But it, it totally makes sense to me that as I have a right of return, as all Jews have refuge here in Israel, uh, that the standards would be different for Jews uh, than for non-Jews. That being said, totally understand the consternation that uh, our Christian friends have, and uh, they should know that they're not alone in, in the frustration uh, of COVID. This is not easy. I I uh, have family members who uh, have been sick, and in fact, my father-in-law uh, passed away in part because of the social isolation that was created by months of not having uh, any family members being able to be there in person with him. This is a, a universal tragedy and something that we should recognize is uh, the reality in the age of corona. Yeah, my father-in-law actually passed away from Corona. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough year for everyone. So from the tough topic of COVID, we'll move over to the easier and lighter subject of Washington D.C. politics. Absolutely, <laughs> that sounds simple. So Capitol Hill is your stomping ground. You've uh, been uh, dealing with it for many years. What do you make of the announcement by APAC that it is stepping into the political fray, forming a real PAC and a super PAC, raising money for candidates? The decision seems like an admission that in these partisan times, you can't just stand on the sidelines and cheer for your team. You have to get down into the mud. And even APAC's statement said, 
quote, the D.C. political environment has been undergoing profound change, hyperpartisanship, high congressional turnover, and the exponential growth in the cost of campaigns now dominate the landscape. And they said they created the PACs in order to significantly deepen and strengthen the involvement of the pro-Israel community in politics. So how does that look from where you stand at the Conference of Presidents? Do you feel that you can still wield significant influence on the White House and on Congress without putting the campaign checks where your mouth is the way APAC is starting to do? I think that uh, APAC's decision makes a lot of sense. It's something that uh, reflects the reality of the age that we are in. Uh, we are in a hyper, hyper partisan uh, era where there are very, very few issues that have cross-partisan acceptance. Uh, for those of us who've been around, like when you were uh, with the uh, in Washington uh, back in the 1990s, there were far more issues that had bipartisan appeal. I was just reading a book about the National Rifle Association, uh, and just 15 years ago, there were 20% of Democrats uh, who were considered uh, pro-gun, who were uh, on the NRA side of the barricades. If you look today, there are zero Democrats who are on that side, and 100% of Republicans who are on the other side. Same on the abortion issue. Uh, when I was coming up in politics, there were a quarter, let's say, of Democrats who were pro-life and maybe a quarter of Republicans uh, who were pro-choice. And that issue as well has very much uh, been one where it's now 100% on one side and 0% on the other. In the pro-Israel community, we've done an amazing job over these decades of ensuring bipartisan support. But this partisan food fight has eroded that. And I think it is incredibly important that as a pro-Israel community, we change our strategy and we uh, morph with the times. And so being in a place where we are, uh, or the pro-Israel community is engaged in campaign finance in a serious way to ensure that friends are rewarded uh, and non-friends are um, unrewarded is something that makes sense in this era. Uh, it's really uh, to continue doing the exact same thing without recognizing the change, I think, uh, would be malpractice. And I think the days of having votes of uh, 430 members of the House uh, voting yes and five voting no uh, are just not there on substantive issues. And so this strategy, I think, recognizes that having a vote of 350 to 50 uh, is fine uh, at the end of the day. If you look at President Biden's most recent package that passed, uh, it passed with 12 Republicans, and that's it in the Senate, uh, but it passed. And I think we have to recognize that the goal line has changed and, and move forward with it. There is a very solid pro-Israel majority in Congress, as there is in America, and I believe that this change by APAC uh, reflects uh, the changing dynamic of the American political system. So where does this leave the Conference of Presidents, which is based on the very old-fashioned notion that you can find a consensus among, quote-unquote, major American uh, Jewish organizations? You've got diametrically opposed groups under your umbrella, from the Zionist Organization of America, which tried to put spokes in the wheel of uh, nominating your your current uh, uh, lay leader, right, your president, Diane Lobb, to, you know, very progressive organizations like the one that uh, she represents, you know, like uh, some of the uh, the religious movements. So do you really believe it's possible for an umbrella organization to speak in, quote unquote, one voice for the American Jewish community? I absolutely do, Allison. Thank you for asking that question. I believe that generally speaking, uh, American Jews agree on the fundamentals of the issues that affect us, that on 80 percent of the issues, we're in the same place. It's the 20 percent that get all the focus. 
It's the 20% the reporters focus on and write about because you can sell newspapers. Uh, but the bottom line is that... Uh, at we the say end, get clicks these days. We don't uh, say sell newspapers. That's good, get clicks. <laughs> and I saw upstairs in the newsroom, you could see uh, by the second which, uh, which stories were getting right. the most clicks. So mm -hmm. I, I understand uh, the impact and the influence there. But I do think that fundamentally we're in the same place and on the major core issues, and it's on the... Uh, the, the tricky issues where there are disagreements. And so, for instance, 51 of our 53 organizations adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. 51 of 53 recognize that this is a definition which is important to combat uh, anti-Semitism, to understand and know what it is we're combating. And so, from the reform movement to the ZOA and everything in between, uh, from Amenu, uh, the labor Zionists, to JINSA, everybody was in the same place, 51 of 53. And so this is a, an example of an issue that represents mainstream American consensus and one where we feel um, empowered to go forward. And so what I've been trying to do over these last two years is find more issues like that, that where we can engage and find the uh, concentric circles where there is agreement. Uh, combating anti-Semitism uh, is certainly uh, one uh, that fits into that uh, bulwark. And much of what we do with the U.S. is a relationship also uh, falls within that. So I think it's uh, the glass is uh, far more full than it is empty, and uh, and that's been a focus of my attention here. I used to joke, you know, snarkily that uh, at least we can all agree on fighting anti-Semitism, but you mentioned the IHRA uh, definition, and Esther, our opinion editor, knows very well that there's uh, there's also some controversy over that. Um, uh, I know you feel strongly about it. There are people as, who... as do 51 of our 53 organizations, but... uh, showing that there is a consensus of American Jewish opinion despite the, the sort of red herring of, uh, of opposition. Uh, which is based on people saying that you shouldn't conflate uh, anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, but you feel very strongly on that issue, right? I do, and I believe the definition itself ensures that it is not used as a cudgel against legitimate criticism of Israel, but rather it appropriately reflects contemporary modern anti-Semitism wherein support for Israel and Zionism are used as a proxy for being Jewish. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't say in polite company, you're a dirty Jew, but you, you can, unfortunately, in many circles, say you're a dirty Zionist or a dirty Israeli. And so what the definition does is, among many examples, is to highlight that because it's not something that is self-evident, particularly outside the Jewish community, the university administrators and others, that if you were to throw a brick through a, uh, through a synagogue window in May during the Gaza conflict, that that is not political expression, that is anti-Semitic expression. So you don't see this as also falling victim to the partisan divide, whereas people on the left point to anti-Semitism on the right and people on the right point to what they consider anti-Semitism on the left. I mean, I think that's problematic across the board where we, we tend not to see um, the Soros uh, on, uh, in our own neighborhood and tend to point uh, across the street. But I think that uh, it's an area that is shifting and one where I'm hopeful we'll be able to move uh, forward on. But I do think that, again, that generally speaking, the consensus is there. And it's something that uh, as an American Jewish community, we are in one place on. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask you about the other breaking news, which was Barack Ravid's R-rated tapes from his uh, X-rated R-rated tapes from his interview with uh, I don't know, based on the former Israel President Donald Trump. Based on the Israeli media, where I saw the F word in every <laughs> newspaper and on TV, I think it's G-rated here for Israel. Okay. Um, but I'll ask you about some other points. You know, Trump told Ravid that Netanyahu was not really interested in peace with the Palestinians, unlike Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who Trump said was more interested in 
piece. Also, the Jewish community has reacted strongly to other quotes like uh, Trump saying, there are people in this country that are Jewish who no longer love Israel. I'll tell you the evangelical Christians love Israel more than Jews in this country. And it used to be that Israel had absolute power over Congress. And today, I think it's the exact opposite. And I think Obama and Biden did that. Matt Brooks of the RJC, the Republican Jewish Coalition, called the quotes a nothing burger. But other Jewish organizations denounced these words as radioactive anti-Semitic tropes. So uh, what do you think about uh, what the former president had to say? A complicated question, Allison. I'd say uh, at the start that you know, I, I agree with the American Jewish Committee, which accused Trump of once again fueling dangerous stereotypes about Jews and that his past support for Israel doesn't give him license to traffic in radioactive tropes or to peddle in unfounded conclusions about the unbreakable ties that bind American Jews to Israel. I think that despite the relationship or the picadillos between one prime minister and one president, that the key is that uh, over these last 70-some years, the bonds between our two governments, between our two peoples, are as strong as they have ever been, uh, and that should be the focus. As it relates to Trump's statement about uh, Abbas, I think, uh, frankly, I think that's outrageous. Uh, I think it is clear that, uh, that Abu Mazen is not a partner for peace, that he is not someone who is engaged in a legitimate effort uh, to bring about any sort of peace or solution. Uh, and I would just start with the pay-to-slay uh, regime, which continues to be in place, which incentivizes terrorists to kill Jews. And that's something that uh, I think foundationally disqualifies the PA from being in a place where we can give them the benefit of the doubt about anything. So on that score, I think Trump was uh, in that interview, which I think was in April, the first one that he did with uh, with Brock Ravid. I think he was still suffering from the the hangover of uh, of January, and and obviously uh, Netanyahu is uh, uh, a sore point with Trump. And so I, I'm hopeful that uh, it's indicative of uh, of of President Trump's uh, anger rather than any sort of reality that was a basis for U.S. policy. So we're reaching the end of the calendar year, and it's been quite a year. We went from Netanyahu and Donald Trump to uh, within a year from uh, Joe Biden in, in the White House and for the past six months, Naftali Bennett in the uh, in the prime minister's office. Would you gauge uh, a significant change in tone and policies with these uh, two different leaders of the two countries and particularly uh, in your country and in, uh, in the United States? I'm interested in how you view um, the Biden administration's performance vis-a-vis -vis Israel and obviously uh, regarding the Iran negotiations over the past year. I've been involved in, in significant discussions, obviously, with the two governments, uh, with the Israeli government here and with uh, our American government. And You just I, met with the new ambassador, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, I'm a longtime friend of Ambassador Tom Nides. Uh, he has uh, started off uh, great. Uh, check him out on social media, and uh, you'll see uh, how he's uh, really taking the country by storm. And I believe that uh, you know, Joe Biden is someone who's had decades of experience dealing with uh, the U.S.'s relationship, uh, as he'll tell you, going back to Golda Meir. And I do believe that he uh, fundamentally has a, a pro-Israel backbone uh, and is someone who, uh, who really understands uh, the, the conflict and understands the pressures that are in play uh, here in Israel. I believe that there is a real recognition by the American government of the, the tenderness uh, of your government here. And so uh, a, a recognition that uh, this government is not going to be one that uh, brings about significant change in a lot of these issues, but one that brings about a change in the in the political structure here and, and sort of brings in a new generation. And I think the American government is very cognizant of that. And I think that's why, for instance, we've seen the, uh, the issue of the consulate in Jerusalem uh, go on the back burner because it's seen as being an issue that, that the government here 
beyond the substantive issues not to reopen it, that uh, it's one that the government here likely uh, couldn't handle uh, if it were to happen. So I think that I know that there are discussions that are happening uh, a lot. Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, is coming to Israel uh, this week and will be in, in high-level discussions uh, relative to all these issues. And, and as you said, Iran is very much at the top of that list. And we're in a place where there are not a lot of uh, easy answers or a lot of good answers. And so uh, I'm, I'm very comfortable and confident that the level of communication between the Biden administration and the Bennett administration as it relates to Iran is far, far closer and uh, much more constant than it was between the Obama administration and the Netanyahu administration. Uh, that one of the lessons learned from that experience in 2015 uh, is for Israel to be engaged and the Gulf allies and others to be engaged at the beginning and throughout so that there are no surprises and so that the conduct is one that includes the appropriate input from Israel and from uh, mm -hmm. the Gulf and from others who are impacted by Iran's uh, malevolence and by Iran's pursuit of a nuclear capacity. Um, on the Bennett side, as a representative of American Jewry, some of whom are very um, unhappy about the state of the frozen Western Wall deal, um, do you sense disappointment? Do you have disappointment in the fact that the new government is not moving that deal forward, even though that they said they would when they uh, when they came into office, because they say they don't want to play into the hands of the Likud and ultra orthodox party? You know, they don't want to exploit the issue. And uh, sort of uh, relative to that, the conservative movement is up in arms these days about a move by the Jewish agency not to permit the uh, Ali of converts from Uganda. So as it relates to this, uh, one of our former chairmen, uh, Rabbi Schindler, who was the head of the reform movement, uh, brought about something called the Schindler Doctrine, wherein the Conference of Presidents does not engage or opine in issues of religion and state. So on a formal basis, we don't get involved in issues uh, like conversion or, uh, or kashrut or, or the Kotel. On an informal basis, I'll tell you that certainly there, uh, in the American Jewish community uh, has folks on all sides of these issues. And for certain, uh, there are uh, there's great disappointment uh, in the lack of movement and the, the fact that the, the government is not at this time able to commit to the promise uh, that they made. And in fact, that is in the, the coalition agreement of the government. So, yes, uh, there's there's certainly disappointment in some circles and uh, and I'm sure pleasure in other circles. And, you know, this is, a, as I said, it's a tender government and these are tender issues. And I, I recognize that uh, the government can only uh, bite off a certain amount at any given time. And, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, that there will be a, a resolution that uh, will bring about uh, a solution that uh, that pleases uh, that pleases everybody uh, is, is for sure a, a high priority uh, of a number of uh, progressive organizations in the reform movement, the conservative movement and others. And and I'm hopeful um, that this will not be a, a stumbling block uh, towards uh, diasporatic connectivity with Israel. So since you're at Haaretz, I have to ask you this. As a, you know, people rail against the Jewish establishment, you are, you embody right now the Jewish establishment. What do you say to young American Jews, or maybe not so young American Jews, who are progressive, who view supporting Palestinian human rights as part of their progressive belief system in racial and, and ethnic justice, who have very harsh criticism of Israel and its leadership, who may or may not define themselves as uh, Zionists. But they're, you know, they're committed Jews. They care about being Jewish and they care about this place. They are very, you know, connected to Israel. Is there a place for them in the American Jewish community, the American Jewish style? I'm sure you must encounter this, right, with people's kids, with people's grandkids and, and people coming up to you and, and asking you how you deal with this, you know, uh, different generation that has grown up with a different Israel and has some very 
harsh, difficult, and uncomfortable feelings about the Jewish state. I think the uh, I think exhibit at one would be the government uh, that's in place here in Israel now, one that includes a uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated entity uh, in the Ram Party uh, with uh, with Abbas, and one that uh, that also uh, goes to the the whole other side of the the spectrum with Yamina, that shows that despite uh, disagreements, that there is a commonality of uh, of issues that bring. Israelis together, and one that uh, similarly uh, brings Jews together in America, despite disagreements that we may have. I think that for those young uh, Jews who are concerned about these issues, I think it's. Uh, it, I think the fact is that there are many who are looking to ameliorate uh, the issues as they relate to uh, Arab Israelis. And I would point to, as far as the Palestinian human rights issues, I would also point to. Uh, the entity that governs uh, the vast majority of Palestinians, which uh, is the PA uh, and their offshoot uh, frenemies uh, with Hamas, and that that should be a uh, a focus uh, of attention. The fact that I just saw uh, the other day the LGBT issues uh, within the PA continue to be horrendous as far as the ability of people to express themselves and to engage uh, across the board. So I think it's these issues are complicated. Um, they're much more complicated than a couple hundred characters on Twitter. And I would encourage folks to really deeply engage uh, in these issues to try to be a part of the solution rather than just to be throwing bricks from the outside. William Daroff, CEO of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. You have been amazing. Thank you so much for coming to us uh, at Haaretz and uh, joining us in the studio. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Allison. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to being back here again post-corona, God willing. Up next, after the break, Esther Solomon will talk to us about the growing tensions in Bosnia and what Israel and the Jewish community should do about genocide denial there. Joining us now is Esther Solomon, Haaretz's Ace Opinions Editor. Welcome, Esther. Hi. You deal with everyone's opinions day in and day out, and on the occasions when you yourself voice an opinion, those of us who know you well sit up and pay attention to it. And so you wrote a very strong opinion piece with a fiery headline, Jews Can't Let the Genocide Deniers Win. You warned in it that unrepentant Bosnian Serb leaders are on the secessionist warpath again and that Jews and Israel must speak out. So we've had so much going on here in the Middle East uh, over past years, post 9-11, the war on terror, upheavals everywhere, U.S., Western Europe, all over the world. The Bosnian conflict, which took place in the 1990s, seems like a million years ago. So please, before you tell us what you think, remind us first of the atrocities that happened there and who was responsible for them. Sure. Well, the Bosnian war was one of a number of conflicts that emerged after the breakup of Yugoslavia after the end of the Cold War. When uh, the communist state of Yugoslavia broke up, then there were various conflicts that emerged in, in all of its constituent entities. And the one in Bosnia was perhaps one of the, the most horrific. It lasted for three years from 1992 to 1995. The aggressors were the Bosnian Serbs who decided they wanted to secede. And their strategy for doing that was to basically terrorize and cleanse the territory that they wanted for themselves of the Bosnian Muslims, or known as Bosniaks, so that they would have a state, a sovereignty based on Serbian nationalism. Now, what happened in the course of that war was that the international community, seeing that atrocities were being planned and about to happen, 
after a lot of debate, established uh, United Nations safe zones in various parts of the country where Bosniaks basically fled to those areas with the guarantee that they thought that they were going to be safe there. And what happened was that the Bosnian Serbs actually overran those areas and committed what has been determined by the International Court of Justice as genocide. They basically separated men from women and children and took, you know, men and boys out and shot them. They also ran after or pursued uh, Bosniaks who fled to the woods. They imposed a siege on the capital city, Sarajevo, which was the longest siege of any capital city in modern times. And uh, there were thousands of people of civilians were basically living in extremely basic conditions. There were snipers that were picking out children as they moved from one part of the city to the other. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was, war was always terrible. But this was a war that happened pretty much in the heart of Europe. 100,000 people died in the war in total. And it ended thanks to uh, U.S. mediation at Dayton. Right. Which in, created... Uh, William uh, Daroff's home state, right, of Ohio. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and, uh, so that, it was ended with this rather strange compromise that there was going to be a unitary state, but with three premiers and two entities. Mm-hmm. One would be Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the other would be the Republic of Srpska, which is basically the Bosnian Serb entity. And what is happening now is much of the same talk about secession and about Serbian nationalism, which by its nature demonizes and others, uh, Bosnian Muslims, has risen again and has powerful backers mm-hmm. from neighboring Serbia, but more importantly from Putin's Russia. So you met in London with uh, Vanya Filipovic, who was Bosnian Herzegovina's uh, ambassador to the UK. Tell us about your meeting. Was his tone one of like deep concern, you know, uh, on the brink? And 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 what does he want from uh, from Israel and the Jewish world? You know, as he communicated to you as a as a writer for Haaretz. Well, Bosnian uh, voices have been rising for several months now, uh, if not years, saying that the tensions are rising to the point that something is going to give. So Ambassador Filipovic, when I spoke to him. He wasn't, he wasn't being uh, overly dramatic mm-hmm. in his presentation, but he was expressing serious apprehension. And part of the problem is that Bosnia is a small country, which, as you say, many people haven't even heard of. Mm-hmm. It's not even on the radar of most people when they think about uh, uh, conflicts, uh, let alone, you know, in Europe and, and let alone thinking about, you know, conflicts that are grabbing headlines around the world. So very much uh, what the ambassador wanted to put forward was to say, you know, this is a conflict that does matter and it matters for the international community, which both failed and succeeded in the past. It failed the people of Bosnia by seeing that something terrible was going to happen, saying it was going to act and then failing, but also by creating some kind of mechanism to end the war and to keep the state together for the last uh, 26 years. And he also suggested that there was a special role for Jewish communal organizations, both in Europe and the States, to raise their voices on behalf of Bosnia. And that's a sentiment that I identify with very much. And that's why I wrote the piece, basically, to say that this is 
a small multi-ethnic state with a large population that is a non-Christian population that has gone through genocide, which included concentration camps and selections, and that it is a small state with no natural allies around it, in fact, largely hostile neighbours. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are many you know, obvious parallels between Jewish experience and history, and I think that it would be a powerful thing for more major Jewish organisations to say this is not a humanitarian disaster mm-hmm. and a kind of social philosophical disaster that we should allow to happen. So what has um, the Jewish community and also, you know, uh, the Israeli government been saying or doing about this? Well, the as you say, the uh, Israeli government has quite a lot on its plate. Mm-hmm. There's quite a long history of Israel having strong relations with the Serbs. You know, there were certainly rumors that during the war there was supposed to be a UN arms embargo and there were certainly rumors that Israel was in fact supplying arms to the Bosnian Serbs. And Israel has put all of the records of what its arms industry was doing during that time under a gag order that won't be lifted for many, many years. That does somewhat suggest that there is something that is being hidden there. But on the other hand, Israel also has full diplomatic relations with Bosnia. So there is hope in Sarajevo that Israel will recognize the seriousness of the situation and and also that it would put in a good word and leverage some uh, influence with the Biden administration, which is obviously far more significant than just little Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of indicated in your piece that there's a there, there's a Russian aspect to this, right? And also, you know, in uh, the whole propaganda aspect of genocide denial, that uh, that there's a lot of uh, rhetoric going on, you know, denying what happened in the 90s. Yes, this is like a central part of what is fueling the conflict now. In some ways, you might think, why would the denial of something that has been proven in court and accepted by much of the international community, you know, why would that be something that is stirring conflict now? But there's good reason for that, because exactly the, the kind of demonization and the kind of stories about the threat of the Bosniaks is what is uh, fueling the ideology of the Bosnian Serbs again now. And not only that, it's just, it's a particularly cruel kind of political behavior, which is supposed to humiliate and belittle mm-hmm. uh, the people who have suffered the most. You ended your piece with optimism on the side of uh, Ambassador Filipovich as to where Jews in Israel will end up and fall on this, but a definite tone of skepticism on uh, on your part. Do you feel like he's being naive? No, I don't think he's being naive. I think that it's a small state that is wants to encourage allies of every kind as much as possible, and that's entirely understandable. Mm-hmm. I think that for the Jewish people who have the experience of having been through genocide, I think that it should give us pause to think, well, you know, there are some times that you have to prioritize normative over pragmatic factors in making policy. Well, thank you, Esther, for your powerful message. Everybody go read uh, Esther's uh, opinion piece uh, in Haaretz.com. That wraps it up for us. Thank you so much to Esther Solomon and to William Dara for, uh, for joining me. And until next time, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.